Welcome to Performance Anxiety. Billy Gold joins us this week. You know him as the bassist from Faith No More, and we talk a bit about the history of the band and some of the other projects he's been involved in, like Shandy's Addiction and Buhiria. But he's also one of the creative forces behind the talking book. They've just released their second album, and Billy spent some time discussing how he and Jared Blum created the band and the music. It's a great album. It's cinematic and expansive. Pick it up at Cool Arrow Records because vinyl is limited to 500 copies, so get a move on. And give us a follow at Performance ANX. Check out Billy Gold and Talking Book. This is Billy Gould. I'm in uh, Fit the More and also the Talking Book. Uh, we have a record coming out. It's going to be 12-inch vinyl, or you can get it on the digital platforms. Uh, you're listening to Performance Anxiety. All right, well, thank you so much for doing this, man. I appreciate it. All good. So I appreciate you wanting to do it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you've got a really wild career, and I'd love to find out a little bit more about it, some of the behind-the-scenes sure. stuff. Um, sure, sure. And that's what this show's all about. It's, it's just learning more about you and we wind up talking about the new uh talking book album and and finding a little bit more about that i guess the first thing i've always i always like to ask guests guests is to find out how you got started in music i mean were you playing bass as a kid did you start off with bass uh how old were you things like that how did how did it get started for you i started playing bass when i was about i was about 12 and uh, I went to somebody's, a friend of mine who was in a Boy Scout trip with, go to his house and we'd just like learn how to play together. Okay. Uh, but I ended up being in a band till I was about 18 with those guys where we started a little independent label, put out a little release, you know, just kind of learned how the business worked back then, oh, you know, cool. on a very small level. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when I was 18, I moved up to San Francisco and I met the guys in Faith No More from there. So that's kind of how it went. And now at the time... At the beginning, it was called Faith No Man, right? Yes, that's right. Okay, so what... Not my idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to, wanted to find out exactly what that means, and, and how did that... Cause that's it does, it doesn't mean anything. No? It's, I, was, I, was, I don't know. I thought it felt, it felt to me like it was a little, like trying to be a little bit will, willfully cryptic, yeah. you know, uh, open-ended, and it was. Okay, yeah, apparently so. So when did it change to Faith yeah. No More? Uh, well, we, we had a, a personnel change, a couple, a couple people left and, and Roddy came in and, uh, because it wasn't faith, no man anymore. Faith, no more was the, uh, obvious place to go. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that makes sense. It was really that, there is no deeper meaning than that. Okay. So it, the, one of the things that I really liked about faith, no more is that, the bass had its own voice in the band. It wasn't just a bridge between drums and guitar. Um, it was that right. kind of the, the plan from the beginning. I would say not. I mean, I wasn't a very good bassist when we started, but uh, <laughs> we did go through a lot of guitar players. And so the bass drums and keys were the kind of the consistent thing for the first two years. And I think I got my voice because I was, really one of the main instruments along with the keyboard i mean there were guitar players but they all kind of brought in different things and we were the consistent part of it and i I think actually for me i benefited from that definitely oh yeah and now i heard an interview where you were talking about mike borden taking some kind of um uh, african drum class and that kind of helped you playing turn into what it is well he was going uh we both went to berkeley school and he was uh 
we would go rehearse after school, and I think that there was a a free class that was being taught by a, a Ghanaian a drum master. Okay. Yeah. And uh, he was going to it, you know, like just checking it out. And he was coming back. I'd see him go to rehearsal. He goes, man, I'm learning this crazy stuff. This is like mind-blowing stuff. Oh, wow. So I went to a couple classes with him. And uh, the, the way of – it wasn't so much technique as the way of looking at music itself that was really eye-opening. And we kind of learned these, this very – basic rudimentary principle and applied it to the music we were doing and, and it opened up a lot of doors okay okay so you, you know you said that the uh band went through a lot of lineup changes but you you uh mike and roddy were the basically the core there right um, we've stayed consistent yeah yeah in, in during those lineup changes i read that you guys would do a lot of open mic shows to, for to have people do vocal duties I mean, we were weird in the beginning. We were doing like every every show was a different different music. It was kind of more like performance. It was like uh, we were doing some weird kind of aggressive ambient music that was like <laughs> kind of trying to scare people a little bit and also like keeping it like kind of chaotic where really we burned a lot of incense and we kind of like tried to create this atmosphere of unpredictability and the open mic thing worked with that where we were kind of creating these hypnotic rhythms and we were trying to get people who kind of uh, – had a certain charisma to them and had them talk over our rhythms. Oh. It, it was very, very different than the structured music year from us now. Okay, so, so like you're saying, it was more like a performance art. Yeah, atmosphere. it was more like a vibe. It was more like a, we were kind of creating these weird happenings. That was kind of what we were going for. Is it true that uh, Courtney Love and Paula Frazier had performed with you guys? Yes, absolutely. Wow. Courtney did a few shows. She played for about six months with us. We only did one show, but we were really good friends. We hung out with Paula a lot back in the day. Okay. And uh, so she was like, I mean, you know, she's like one of us. She's a part of the gang we hung out in. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. And you guys, uh, Faith No More was active for years and years. I mean, eight, was it 83 through 98? Was that about right? Maybe more 82 80, oh, wow. through 98. Yeah. Wow. And pretty, pretty much pretty consistent, pretty nonstop. Yeah. Until 98. Yeah. You know, yeah. Now, at what point, I know you guys are toured constantly, and that's got to be hard on a band. I mean, is that part of what what caused the initial breakup in 1998, I guess it was? You know, the basic way I could distill what happened was we were just tired. We were tired of each other, and we were tired of the work that it took. I think we were all kind of beaten down by you know, it became kind of like a cart that we were pulling. And, and, and I, I don't think that our live performances ever really suffered. I don't think our music ever suffered on our releases, but it was just getting harder and harder to do. And, you know, they, they were always easy. It was never easy making music with us. We're very different people. Uh, so you really have to have the energy to want to do it. And I think that we just kind of didn't. 
after being in, in a band for so long, was it, was it hard not to be in faith no more and, and pursue other interests? Not at all. It was a very, <laughs> the, the hard part was for me, uh, I became very aware of how much kind of I was protected by that band. Uh, oh, really? I started a record label right away and, and I realized that my association with Faith No More as a, as a private person didn't mean shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I didn't really think that it did, but uh, I mean, we kind of came from the van days and we kind of came from not, you know, from nowhere, but so I didn't think it would be such a big deal, but it really was a big deal because people I knew immediately treated me differently. It was, it was a very, very uh, interesting process to go through and very educational in a good way. Oh, well, that's, that's good. No. And, and in the, it, was, it was very positive, actually. Oh, good. <laughs> a lot of times people will say that, and it, it's like, oh, it was horrible. This is a... Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, what happens is when things go well for you in a band, um, one of the byproducts is things get done. Difficult things get done for you, right? Like, yeah. you know, you're always like, I wish I had a manager so we didn't have to make these cold calls to these clubs or, you know, God, I wish we had a booking agent, you know, or blah, you want the, and then you get these things and they actually save you from a lot of like real rolling up your sleeves kind of work. And, um, it makes you think that things go pretty well where you don't have to be confrontational with people and you, you, you communicate, you start to communicate passive aggressively because, you don't really have to be aggressive. Right? <laughs> you get what you need done. And, you know, all of a sudden I kind of realized like I had to be confrontational with people again. I had to be direct with people and I didn't, I didn't like it at the beginning. Um, yeah. you know, you, cause you're responsible to yourself. And, and I remembered, Oh yeah. Right. Like, you know, if I needed to get it done, I need to get it done. It was, it was a great, it was a great experience. In the, in, in the latter Faith No More years, you, you were involved in some really interesting projects. And, I want, and one of the ones that, that always stands out to me is one of my favorite tracks off that Kiss My Ass compilation, Shandy's Addiction. Oh, yeah. How, the, how did that all come together? Because that's, that's just a really wild bunch of guys there. I mean, it, it's it, you and Maynard James, Keenan, Tom Morello. I mean, how did, how did all that? Well, I mean, this is, this is really early days of Tool. Yes. In really early days of Rage Against the Machine, actually. Yeah. We had the same manager as us and uh, the Rage guys. Okay. So uh, my manager called up and said, hey, you know, they're doing, Kiss wants to do this thing. And, you know, Faith No More didn't want to do it. Not all the guys are big Kiss fans in the band, but I was. Yeah. So uh, he said, but the Rage guys, a couple of those guys want to do it. And like, yeah, sure. You know, why not? You know, so, and they go, yeah, my friend Maynard wants to sing. And they're like, I don't know this Maynard guy. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Why not? Right. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was a great experience. We only did one song. Uh, it was fun. It was really fun. We, we, we did our little arrangement thing in a day, recorded it. And then Maynard came up to San Francisco and uh, we did vocals one day, went out, had a couple drinks and had some dinner. And it was a great experience. That... It was fantastic. That's awesome because that is my favorite track off that whole tribute album. That that's the coolest. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm happy with it. I'm happy with it. And you also did um, 
Oh, was it a grindcore brujeria? Is that my pronouncing that right? Yes. Yeah, brujeria. Yeah. Yes. How did that happen? How did you come across and get involved with that project? Um, those are guys I grew up with oh. in L.A. I went to high school with a few of these guys, and they were. Um, this was their idea, actually. It was a great idea. Uh, just uh, back in East L.A., back in the late '80s. This grindcore thing was really taking off. Uh, a lot of earache bands, a lot of bands like Carcass and Terrorizer, the, uh, people in East LA were all over that. And we're like, man, they were like, we should do this. We should do this like properly, like properly like Rasa. So <laughs> I was the white dude in the band, but uh, we did this kind of crazy experiment because it was, at the time, it was really pretty extreme. It was the music was extreme at the time, but the lyrics were really extreme at the time too. Yeah. And, uh, so that's, you know, we kept masks on and we, it was, it was, it was, it was just a cool, cool project. So you that predated all like all of Mushroom Head and Slipknot and all those guys. Oh well, yeah, it was late eighties. Yeah. yeah, so you, you, we we did a single. First, it was just kind of like some crazy experiment where we would just make a, a forty-five and we only press three hundred of them. You know, well, we don't lose too much money. Yeah, we recorded it for like fifty bucks or something, <laughs> and uh, like three hundred sold, boom, like that. And we're like, holy shit, this is like a real thing. <laughs> So it was, it was a few years and it was fun. It was kind of like dirty money. So like we got some royalties for it. I would just go to Las Vegas with whatever royalties we got. And it was because it was kind of the devil's money. Right. And that's kind of how we all looked at it. That was the cool spirit of it. It wasn't really like a group that had all these kind of pressures that bands have. I mean, the Faith of More was, you know, it's been a really good creative outlet, but it was really always something that was, uh, you know, we we did touring and we 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 made it like a business and there's a lot of pressure and stuff that comes with that and yeah. Bukhari was kind of a way just to be in a band that didn't have those kind of issues. Oh. and it sounds like it was a lot of fun for you too. It was great. I loved it. Now you mentioned you know starting up your own label. How did you get started in production? At, actually, well, production started with Faith No More because. Um, we always were paranoid against like producers and record companies. So we always tried to control as much of the artistic process as possible. Okay. Which means that mostly when we went into record, even with Matt uh, in the early days, he was like our brother, but uh, he was a technical guy. We weren't very technical, but we did the arrangements ourselves. And that's, that's a big part of production is just arranging and um, orchestrating writing arrangements and, and pre-production. So we already did it. So when I got into like I wanted to learn about, you know, a little more technical aspects of recording, I already knew a lot of the part about song arranging already. It was a very easy, natural transition. And it was fun. I mean, I still read Gear Sluts every day. You know, I, <laughs> I, I like it. It's fun. And so you've got a, a really wild array of, of guys on, on the record label on Cool Arrow. Right. And including one former podcast guest with Alexander Haka. So. Right. 
I love sure. I love Alexander Hockett. He's been on the awesome. show. Yeah, he was so nice. He's a really great guy to to to, to have on the show. So, are you looking for anything in particular? Is there any common thread between any of the the, the people that you have on the label? So I went into this really different than a lot of people who do labels because a, a label is a business as well, and yeah. it survives off of selling product. That's that's what it is. Right. And I kind of went into it like a musician. I didn't have a band anymore, and I just wanted to keep making music. I didn't know if I was so happy about getting in another band, but I wanted to work with bands. So I saw this as kind of as a creative outlet. Not not the smartest way to start, but <laughs> that's how I did it, right? So so uh, my thing was, you know, I toured so much. I heard so many amazing bands, especially in Europe, that nobody had any idea existed here, and they, they couldn't get released here. And oh, okay. I was like, this is ridiculous, because I, to tell you the truth, a lot of American music is really the same. It, it, it's very same-ish. It's about, you know, it's a big market here, so it's a lot about moving big numbers and, and, and volume and you know, Europeans, they have a different social system there. You know, they have festivals that are sponsored by cities, so they can do interesting bills. They have grants, government grants to make records. So I you're going to see a lot more eclectic, uh, interesting motivations. And I kind of wanted to be a pipeline from something that, that had no chance of getting released here, but should be. Okay. And that's the way I look. So there wasn't really a style I was looking for. I was more uh, trying to be almost like a like – a, like a, philanthropist you know in a way like i want to make this available here and so you know i think you know there'd be hip-hop bands there would be bands like alex there'd be all different kind of stuff it just i knew when i when i hear it if it talks to me and i hear it and i see that it it needs a little help mm -hmm. i like to provide that okay and i, I did notice there's a, a group a specific group of spanglish artists right that right is that how I haven't had a chance to listen to, to many of those. Is there, is there anything specific about that? Because I didn't, honestly didn't even know that that was a, a thing, a, a, like a genre, I guess. But I see you've got like 13 artists. Yeah, this is well. This is the first thing we put out when we did Colero, and a lot of it had to do with it was back in the Brujeria days, right? Right, and right. It was like it was a big music scene in East LA, and actually, there's a big music scene like of like kind of extreme stuff all through Latin America, and so I don't think anybody like Anglo people in the states had any idea about it. So that was our big, you know, it's like, hey, check this out. You know, it's not just all, you know, timbales and uh, maracas, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it, 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 in a weird way, what I what I did um, it doesn't it has a different meaning now, because back then there wasn't really an Internet that where you could hear music from all over the place. Right. Right. So everything was very stereotyped. You know, if it's Latin, it has to sound like, you know, Selena Gomez, you know, yeah. is this, right. Yeah. And, or, and or mariachi band. Complete, total bullshit. And uh, you know, I mean. I don't like people telling me who I am, right? Right. You know, I don't like being typecast, right? And uh, poor guys over there, you know, they weren't catching a break. So <laughs> I figured, you know, it's a nice way to open it up. Nowadays, it's a little easier to figure that out. Yeah, the internet is... Has, that's what we did. And like like you said, you know, it, it's uh, it's a shame when a whole group of people get get stereotyped into one type of music. And there's, there's so yeah. many varieties of, of music, no matter where you go. So. 
No, I was going to say, like, one thing that really struck me when the internet was starting to kind of get going, I was with this band Naive, which I put out. A, it was a Russian punk band, and I was in Moscow recording them. I was there for a couple of months, like, in the in the 90s. And uh, I, I think that we had something. So, somebody, I think it was Kurt Cobain, had died. It was around, that, what year did he die? I think it was 94. Exactly that time. Okay, so that's where I was there. Okay, and uh, there were Russians like taking collections, like for benefits for him, for his family. Oh wow! And it was just funny because yeah, but it was it was also like made me realize like our culture here, everybody knows it everywhere. Like it was like it was their culture there, and it's great. That's great. I mean, we export our culture very well, but yeah. it doesn't really come back the other way, and it should. Now, how did you meet up with Jared Bloom to start the talking book? Uh, he's a, there's a place in where I live in San Francisco. It's a neighborhood called the Lower Hate. I've lived here for 30 years, and um, there's a sausage place. It's awesome. <laughs> Every Tuesday, they have a thing called Hamburger Tuesday. Okay. Only make hamburgers. They're fucking great hamburgers. And usually there's a line of people on Hamburger Tuesday to get hamburgers. And Jared was standing in front of me in line. <laughs> <laughs> So we were talking about food and then he kind of, he kind of recognized who I was and we just got talking and he was, he's an experimental artist. He'd done a lot of releases under his label and, uh, he came over to my studio and we did a little, you know, tweaking and mixing and stuff. And, you know, I really liked what he did. Yeah. I kind of have a background where I listened to a lot of experimental music growing up. So it wasn't that, even though people think of me like a rock guy, I'm not completely that. Okay. Uh, we just said one day we were just like, man, we should just do something together and see what we would come up with. And so we, that was the first talking book we did in 2011. Okay. Now, was there a, uh, a theme behind it, a, a, a co an idea for it, or was it just you guys just working ideas out? Um, with this kind of music, the idea finds you. Like, uh, you feel this idea, but you don't know what it is. And, and, and the music is kind of this kind of discovery. And when you get there, you kind of see that, well, that thing that you were working for. So we kind of just said, what are we going to do? What can we find with both of us together, you know? Yeah. And that's what we found. Now, when you started, had you planned on this being more than just one album? Were there thoughts of that? Or was it just, we're gonna, we'll do this one project and then, you know, that'll be it? Yeah, that's originally when we did it. We were like, just to see what we would come up with. And um, then we started doing some gigs, a couple of gigs. Like Mike Patton had a show at um, Great American Music Hall and he wanted an opener. It's like, well, let's just throw something together and do it. And that worked. And then we went to South America a couple of times. We did a string of shows and, uh, we picked up Dom, who's our third member, and um, we're like, you know, this is this actually could be a thing. Is it kind of got our groove? Actually, I mean, with this, the more you do it together, the better you get to know each other. So, oh yeah, you're right. Is it difficult to play this kind of stuff live for you? It is for me, not for them. Yeah. It's very easy for them because they, this is their world. For yeah. me, uh, it's it's I don't like improvising in front of people like it's not my world i mean i do it much better now than i used to uh but i didn't grow up that way um i always write songs and play the songs that we wrote and i saw myself like a songwriter and it's more linear 
with this, um, I felt uncomfortable just standing out there and kind of, there's so much open-endedness about it. It didn't, yeah. and people, you know, bought tickets to see it. Like, I feel like it's almost like I'm bullshitting my way through a test or something, right? An <laughs> yeah. oral report. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but it was really good for me, actually, as a musician to really get to, to learn about this and, and develop this language because I, it, it was very important. And I, I, it's good that I did it. I like it much better now than I used to. Oh, good. Now, did you play out live more bef- you know, with other bands before playing live with the Talking Book stuff or were you staying more in the studio? Ooh, well, Faith and More toured a lot, so... Oh, that's right. Yeah, that, that's right, because it, it came out in... Let's see, the first album came out in 11, right? The well, yeah, so that's 11 years after we... We were already playing again as Faith and More. Okay. Um, but, no, I mean, I played in a lot of groups, but mostly, I, I would say those 10 years or 12 years between Faith and More, I did more as a producer than as a musician. Okay. Now, there's a... What, nine years between the first Talking Book album and, and the new one that, that's coming out... Yep. Is were you, were you working on it the entire time, or did you just kind of put it aside? Yes, and... we were, but it was brutal. It was <laughs> like um, we finished this tour where we had a lot of new material, uh, our foundations of new material, and I just thought, well, we're, we're kind of working together. We got this language. Let's just make a live recording in a way, and we can fix that. And we got our next album, and studio flooded. Oh. So that was a drag because uh, the flood came in, and we had to get all of my gear out of there. And it took a couple months to get back together. I had to get some new gear. It was a real drag. And then, well, Jared had a had a son, you know. So that takes a little visiting. And then I got in this motorcycle accident where I, I knocked my head pretty hard, and that took a little steam out. And oh, then the studio flooded again. And so, <sighs> what we had, which we thought was something, was close to life. The big part of it was done. You know, as time goes by, you have these like you know waiting periods and. You start looking at it differently, like, well, I could, I could probably do this. This could probably be a little better. You're like, well, yeah. this isn't quite so interesting anymore. And so you go back and revisit it. And we did that over like five years. It was, it got to the end, I'm like, I don't think this thing's ever going to get done. <laughs> but it's not done till it's done. With, with this kind of music, if you don't feel it, it's not done. And you can't release something, you can't let it go until you're ready to let it go. So we thank God we fucking got there. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, I have to credit Jared, Jared for that. I mean, there was some points where I was like, oh. <laughs> I don't know, man. You know, and he's like, he he kind of stuck with it. We'll try. What about this? What about this? We're like, there you go. Crack that problem right there. It's really a lot of problem solving. I can imagine because I've I've heard the new album and it's very layered. It's there's so many different sounds is it hard to construct it because it's it sounds like more more of a construction process than than a a musical project well that's the that's the challenge i mean it is a construction process but how do you keep it musical yeah right how do you know when it's still musical so it's it's you have to have all these things right yeah and we do it this is visual music for us so we know we're in the right path when we start seeing things. When things start evoking images in mm. our brains, we start seeing things, we know we're going the right way. And there's nothing worse than having really a bunch of cool stuff, but you're not seeing anything from it. It just feels dead, right? Yeah. And you're trying to find out what's the thing that's keeping it from from getting life. And that's that's kind of that's the process. Is it hard to, to piece things together? Like, for example, you've got the song on the new album, Heritor. That, right. That's my favorite track off the entire album. I absolutely love that. 
it's cool. It's got so many layers, so many odd sounds, like bumps and squonks and all kinds of. Is it? Is are those things planned? Is it more of a trial and error to put them in the right spot, making sure it's the right sound? It's um, it's like working with clay. <laughs> right? Is it? You just keep you just keep full molding it and molding it, and it's try to build something doesn't work. You break it down again, and you mold it again, and you just it's this living weird thing. It, it's just all these elements kind of have to fit together. It's it's and you do one thing, and it sets all the things off balance, uh, and you're like fuck, right? Yeah. Sometimes you can't go back there, right? So, yeah. Uh, so it's it's just it's a tricky thing. It's got to be a labor of love, then, at this point, because if if you building it up it's in the not a lip <laughs> for the hours we put on this we'd be getting paid about like three cents an hour i mean it's serious it's a serious a lot of work for a very little payoff in that way so it's a complete labor of love yeah now, that's it the album is really cool and it sounds like it's it's almost two albums is it's coming out on vinyl is it was it interesting that you that say that it's actually two pieces. Okay. And uh, it's actually two sides of one album. So we did a limited edition uh, vinyl. Okay, yeah. Where each piece is on each. It's two giant. It's two pieces. Okay. Yeah. It's actually, yeah, it's a side A and side B. And it, it, it's really, it's a whole story. It's a whole film, really. It, it sounds very cinematic. Very, very, um, it, it definitely sounds like a side A sounds to me like it could be something it's it's more organic could be something like a an epic western almost and where side b sounds a little more sci-fi to me i mean it's kind of a coming of a plague yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a it's about when it comes if, if you look at the titles it's kind of like it's like a plague or it's like an invasion but it's like some kind of invasion it's like a society that's invaded and then part of the the album is really the aftermath and, and what happens after that okay. so that's the story it's a story of a civilization or society at the beginning of this uh, of the track, "A Crumbling Mind Smiles," there is this really spooky audio clip. <laughs> what 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 is that? My daddy was in the army. My daddy was in the army. I was in the lady. You know what? This is a weird one, but kind of cool. Recorded that while he was eating lunch with his kid. He was uh, some guy who was in the restaurant and he was like raving. And it sounds pretty spooky because when you put the things that we have, it, it completely colors it and it puts it in this like sinister feeling. But it was just basically just a guy talking shit in a restaurant. That's crazy. Oh my God. <laughs> it's, I mean, the, the, the title of. Is, is there's a lot of the sounds we use are not typical. Yeah, I mean, and the, the title for that song is perfect. A crumbling mind smiles because that's exactly what it sounds like. It sounds like somebody's <laughs> losing their shit, and it it's gone. <laughs> so, so now, what to you is the biggest difference between working on Talking Book One and Talking Book Two? The difference. Talking Book Two, there was a little bit of um. 
I had a little more expectations of what I wanted from it okay. that would make me feel good. Yeah. Uh, so it was a little more, a little more of a struggle. Um, but I also think that I think that this is a better record. I I love Talking Book to you. I've heard it more than the, the Talking Book one, but I really am enjoying it. Um, I mean, you know, tracks like Thermal Drift and Blood Aurora. I don't know, in this country, like if people are into this kind of music anymore. I'm glad you are. <laughs> I, people, I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy that you have the patience to listen to this. I mean, I think it's rewarding if you do. Yeah, I agree. I was kind of under the impression, like, I don't know who this is going to connect to. I don't know people living in Spotify, uh, random played generations. I don't know if they're going to connect with it. Well, well can, you have to do it anyway, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of the whole Spotify thing. I, I, I like to sit down with an album and, and, listen to it, absorb it and, and learn it. Right. And, right. and, and having physical copies, like, like the, the, the vinyl to me is important too. I, because I'm a, I was a photographer for years and having that artwork is just right. as important as, as the music inside of it. It's interesting, huh? It's, it is. It's a whole, it's a whole system. It all matters. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. It's a, it's art. Yeah. Music is art. The, the cover art is art. And, uh, it, it, means a lot to me to see such something that that's so unique and and so different come to life because it's really amazing work i mean i i go into the things like what am i missing in my life right what am i missing with music why do i want to make music there's so much shit out there already yeah. so wh why would i want to add to this shit and it's because it's, what am i missing right mm -hmm. and what i kind of miss now is evocative music that, that that takes me someplace yes uh i i hear i hear the pro tools you know i hear the auto tuning i hear the quantizing i hear all of that shit i hear people making music that's that's product and and it's arranged and it's and it, it, it's sometimes really well done, sometimes really well recorded, but it doesn't take me anywhere. Yeah. Like when I grew up listening to music, where that magic that, 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 that brought something inside of me that I connected to. Yeah. And so I want to do something that does that. Talking Book 2 has done that for me, too. It, it's, I, I really got fascinated by the, the sounds and, and how the, the songs would build, how the layer after layer would, would creep in and... It's it's just a, a pleasure to listen to for me. I, I've I've really awesome. enjoyed it. Do you guys have plans once things calm down with the whole virus stuff going to to, to tour and, and play this live? I mean, it would be pretty cool. We had Faith No More show scheduled through the summer. Yeah. So that wasn't even though we're releasing this record now, uh, we were, we didn't have any shows to go with it. Now that this thing is all in flux. Uh, we're trying to figure out what's going on. What's, what, how's the next year going to look? I don't think anybody knows. No, God, no. And what I've noticed is a lot of people doing live streams, you know, bands. Oh, yeah. Doing, oh, yeah. That's true. So, I mean, I, I don't know if that's possible with Talking Book, but maybe you guys could do a live stream. That would be that would be amazing. We could. Actually, I think we could do that. I think we could do that, actually. That's a great idea. See, now, are you I guys, think we should. Are you guys all local to close to each I mean, I know you and Jared are, but we it's are. I mean, we were, we're five miles away from each other. Yeah, so local. Oh, see, that, local enough. That could be amazing. That I would, I would total. I would absolutely watch you guys for however long that show is, because because this music that's is a fascinating. really good idea. I'm gonna look into that. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, that's that's great. Now, where can people find the album? When
you can get it on all of the iTunes and all that digital platforms. But basically, it's either that or it's going to be an album. It's going to be a 12-inch. Uh, okay. You can get it um, on the website, Coolero. There's going to be a link for it, but Amazon will have it. Uh, any online retailer should be able to have it. We're only making 500 of them. Uh, we just thought, you know, for people who really want vinyl, let's keep it special. Let's just make 500 for the people who really want it. And then they have something that, that really means something. Yeah. You know, if we left it open and just made a lot of vinyl, I, I want this. I don't want this to be a special project. It took me six years. You know, yeah. <laughs> it should be special for you too, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> special for everyone who actually cares about this thing. Right. Yeah. And so, so it's limited. So you're not, you're not, you know, get them, get them while you can get them, yeah. and then they'll be gone. But that's okay. The people have them. It'll mean something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And what are, do you have any plans for after post Talking Book Two? Are there uh, is there a Talking Book Three in the works? You ask me as I just finished six years of hell. <laughs> 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 I mean, I don't see why not. Sure, I, I don't see why not. I mean, I, I would like to be a little more prolific than than every eleven years putting something out. For sure. <laughs> Um, there's a lot of things that I want to do, actually. There's a lot of music that I want to make still. And uh, I mean, I write, I'm a songwriter. I write all the time. So I want to stay productive. I want to stay creatively productive. Do you have uh, other projects that you're working on besides Talking Book at this point? Uh, I'm doing some production stuff right now, some mixing projects. Um, and I'm always writing. So there's, yeah, there's some stuff, but nothing worth talking about yet. <laughs> well, look, man, I've, we've wrapped up a little early, but that's, I've, learned everything that i that i've been curious to know about so i want to thank you so much for your time hey man i really appreciate that you wanted the features and i'm really glad you like it like i said you know this music isn't for everybody and i appreciate it when the person connects well it it, it's fantastic i i I absolutely love it and i'm actually going to play it for my my uh kids here pretty soon let them uh absorb it because they they're into into longer pieces they're they're all in uh band at school and so they they appreciate uh music that's composed and and built and not just jammed how old are they uh, i've got 15 16 and 17 excellent great years yes. great years so they're, they're they're actually they're probably really good at the computer they probably like oh yeah they're gonna take the stuff that they're hearing and they're gonna take it to the next level for sure here's hoping I've, they all they'll play a little bit of guitar but my oldest plays the trumpet uh, my oldest daughter plays the trumpet. My middle, my son, who's in the middle, he plays the tuba slash sousaphone, and my youngest daughter plays a French horn. Awesome! So fantastic! Yes, we got a whole brass section. My house is is a cacophony <laughs> all the time. Amazing! You got to record that stuff and send me the files so I can put it in the next talking book. Oh, definitely! <laughs> <laughs> and thank you so much for your time tonight. To, right. I really appreciate it.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 